Bangor Worldwide has been promoting and supporting World Mission for over 85 years. Our podcasts are free of charge. You can find out more about us at www.worldwidemission.org. We hope you enjoy this talk. Um, thank you um, for the introduction. Thank you so much for allowing me to come. I've come all the way from East Belfast, so no problem, anytime, anytime. Um, and I'm married to Ed. We've been married for nearly eight years. We have a little boy called Nathaniel, who'll be two in a few weeks' time. So that's interesting. Um, lots of fun, uh, lots of energy required. Um, so, as you said, Janine, I work for International Justice Mission. I'm curious as to who has heard of IJM before. A few people. So this is really exciting for the rest of you because you get to hear for the first time. Um, so, so we are 20 years old this year, actually. Uh, we were set up in 1997, um, and we tackle issues of violence, like you said. So that particularly issues around slavery um, all over the world. Um, and... I, well, I grew up in the Crescent Church in Belfast, which some of you may be familiar with, and the Crescent always um, highlighted issues of poverty um, and things as I was growing up, um, so I always felt like I had an awareness of, uh, of those kind of issues and an interest in them. We did a lot with tear funds, so I used to, uh, uh, you know, learn about TB or AIDS and, and kind of share like, things like that with people in church. And, and I knew that whenever I was finishing school, I wanted to take a gap year. I didn't really know what I wanted to study um, at the university, but I knew that I wanted to go away to Africa. So I did that when I was 18. I chose um, to study law at Queen's really because... I heard it was a good degree to have. That was really the extent of the reason. Um, and my dad and I decided together in the car one day because we, just, we had to decide, we had to write it down in the form or something. So, um, and then, but I deferred it and I went to Africa, to Zambia. And whenever I was there, um, obviously I was faced um, a little bit closer with poverty and what that really looks like. And, and that was challenging. Um, it, was, it was tough, um, as you can imagine. Uh, pe children that I knew, um, children that I spent time with, who then died because of illness, because really they just didn't have the resources that we would have here, and it just didn't seem fair. But I did come home from that year with a greater sense of who God is, and actually that he is good all the time, that we don't always see the whole picture, but he does, and so we can trust him. And whenever I was in Africa, somebody told me, about international justice mission, that it had a legal side to it and I might find it interesting. And so I went to the nearest internet cafe in the town where I lived in Zambia and I googled it and I really was amazed by the kind of things they were doing and how they weren't just um, taking one case by one case of injustice, but they were uh, trying to uh, tackle uh, structures that were that were damaged, structures that were weak and were actually help keeping people poor and and keeping people vulnerable. So whenever I came back, then I qualified as a lawyer. So that took uh, five years, but I was always involved in things like Tear Fund and IJM. And eventually then in 2011, um, was offered a job with International Justice Mission and we opened our office based in Belfast. So at that stage, nobody here really knew about uh, the work of IJM. So that has been my job, has been to try and um, tell lots of stories, drink lots of tea, and try and uh, inspire people about what God is doing around the world through us. Okay. 
Great to be here, so slightly different. I, this is my first time in Northern Ireland, my first time to Belfast, my first time to Bangor. And, um, and I can see the sun is fighting through, so I appreciate that. Um, it's a, a little bit uh, different in temperature to what I'm used to in, in Cambodia, but I'm actually quite grateful for that too. So uh, thank you for the, for the warm welcome. It's, it's really great to be here. And, and I just love that 81 years later, you've still got this passion for mission, and, uh, and that hasn't changed. So, uh, so for me, yeah, you'll tell that um, I'm from across the water. Um, my family are all from Manchester, and I, I grew up in the south of England. Um, I was uh, I was working in a in a corporate job when um, when God decided to turn our lives around. My husband and I and uh, and called us to Cambodia. Um, uh, we went we left our jobs and went to Bible school. And uh, and in 1997, with OMF, actually, we had our first exposure to Vietnam, Cambodia, and Thailand. Um, thinking that God was going to take us to Vietnam, um, but then he made it very clear that Cambodia was the place for us to go, even though that was not on my list with God. You know, I'd said, don't, don't want to go to Cambodia, I'll go to Vietnam, but not Cambodia. And, uh, and it's amazing how God kind of uh, changes our hearts. Mine was overnight. God had to do a couple of radical things to give me a push. Um, and so, uh, so in 1999, we moved as a family. Our daughter at that time was four years old, and our son was five months old. Um, for you grandparents out there, you can imagine what our mothers felt. We were not the most popular uh, <laughs> family um, in our town. And, um, and we, uh, we went out to Cambodia with um, a mission organization called WEC. Um, maybe uh, some of you know that. And, um, and Cambodia um, has become our heartland. And, um, and within a few months of arriving there, um, uh, I carried out a piece of research, and this was how I kind of ended up in, in working in this issue of anti-trafficking. And uh, the piece of research that I was working on was looking at this, this street kids population in Phnom Penh. Where are they all disappearing to? Everyone said, they're going through the border to Thailand. So we went up to the border, um, and we literally saw them trading children through the border. And, uh, and it was um, back then, Cambodia, um, the road system uh, was a little challenging. And, uh, and we ended up on probably a journey now that takes like three hours. Back then, it took about 17. And, uh, and I can remember on that journey, God saying to me, um, this journey is going to be the journey that is going to change the vision that I have for you for the rest of your life. And it did. And, um, and so I uh, ended up working um, with a couple of organizations, um, helping them set up programs. And then uh, 12 years ago, I uh, set up Chabdai. Um, Chabdai in the Cambodian language means joining hands. And, um, and really, it came out of uh, the desire to uh, coordinate um, the efforts of Christian organizations in Cambodia. Um, would you now mind just sharing a little bit about what your organization, the work kind of organization, your work, no, sorry, the work that your organization does. Sure. Got the words mixed up there, but I got there in the end. <laughs> 
Yeah, so uh, Chabdai um, uh, primarily was set up, um, I set it up as a, as a coalition of Christian organizations, IJM being one of them actually on the ground in, in Cambodia. So even though Ruth and I only met each other yesterday, our organizations have a lot of history. And, um, and so what we wanted to do, we saw this crisis of human trafficking. And, um, and just as, you know, um, if you see a disaster response and many people going to the ground, the most important thing in those early days is coordination, right? Because if you're in a disaster zone and you've got a thousand people milling around trying to help a million people, you're going to have people who are still going to starve and you're going to have people who have maybe got five or six meals a day. And so we realized that this was a crisis situation that really needed um, coordination. And so, um, so as, a, as a Christian, working for a Christian organization, I thought, okay, this will be easy. I'll just get all the Christian agencies together, and they would just love to work together, right? Because, uh, because this is what the church does, right? And um, yeah, that didn't quite go as quickly as I had planned. <laughs> and, uh, and so it took a couple of years to get the groups around the table, but then um, what we started to do was started to work together. And we started to see that together, working as the body of Christ among our different organizations, we were going to have much more impact on this issue. We were going to be much better witnesses in Cambodia. And and now, if you look kind of back over the last 18 years, even if you talk to the Cambodian government, they will say it's the Christian organizations who have led the way forward. And, uh, and I think that that is a witness, right? Because we are saying, you know, the Christian organizations, if we believe that everybody is created in the image of God, I kind of believe that doesn't matter who you are, every single person is created in the image of God, then as Christian organizations, we should be leading the way at the front, forefront of human rights work. Um, and so we do a lot, spend a lot of time doing um, training on the ground. Um, Cambodia um, is a country that came out of, uh, of a genocide and, um, and many of the population um, are still um, suffering from post-traumatic stress. Um, the education system is being very late um, being developed. And so what would happen is, um, you know, here you have counselors and social workers and others who are trained, right? And, uh, and Janine is a, a qualified counselor. Well, on the ground in Cambodia, it was a little different. Our very first social work degree program only started four years ago. And so um, organizations would come to the ground, start up shelter programs and working with highly traumatized populations. And they were recruiting amazing um, uh, people with vision from the church with no training. And so those fabulous young women said, yes, I'll go and work with these survivors of trafficking in shelters. And within a short space of time, they were burning out and having breakdowns themselves because they had no skill set. So a lot of what we do is building capacity of Cambodians because we want Cambodians to lead this journey. We want Cambodians to be the ones to be the change in their own country. And so to leave a legacy, uh, a lot of what we do is, is training uh, of Cambodians to work in this area.
Yes, so International Justice Mission, as I said, is 20 years old. We were set up by a man called Gary Haugen, who is American. He is a lawyer and a Christian. And in the 90s, he was asked to go to Rwanda after the genocide there um, and lead a UN investigative team uh, to look at what had happened there and why. And of course, as you can imagine, that was a very challenging experience. And that plus other uh, things that he had seen and experiences he had and work that he had done, he felt really strongly that he wanted to set up something that would uh, tackle issues of violence. And there were a lot of organizations dedicated to tackling poverty, but not so many uh, that would um, give the tools or help people when they were victims of violent injustice. And so that's what he did in 1997. Um, It was really just him and a couple of others back then and we've grown now to about a thousand staff around the world. We work in about 17 communities in the developing world, so including um, Cambodia, also uh, Thailand, the Philippines, India, Uganda, Kenya, and this is a challenge to get them all, Dominican Republic, um, Guatemala. I'm going to finish it there just in case. Um, But, uh, and We'll tackle different issues in different places, but they'll all have a similar element of uh, violence or threat or force. Um, So that might be families enslaved in India um, into rice mills or brick kilns enslaved through debt, but huge amount of violence used to keep control. It might be widows in Uganda whose land is taken from them, often violently, um, after the death of their husbands. It could be girls in the Dominican Republic um, trafficked into brothels. Um, So I wanted to give you an example of what we actually do about that. So Nessa is a 25-year-old girl in, um, in the Philippines. She grew up in Cebu, um, but her father died when she was quite young, and so they were poor, and money was, you know, money was tight for the family. So when she was 16, a couple of family friends suggested that she go, uh, that they knew of a job in a restaurant, um, not too far away, actually only about 30 minutes from home, and she jumped at the chance um, of a little more income. And of course, you've heard stories like this before. Uh, it was a trick, a trap, and she was um, sold into a brothel. And it's that um, that debt, then that initial debt that often uh, keeps people enslaved. Um, the, the brothel owner, it can be very, very meticulous about keeping score of all that Nessa owes, all the food that she has, the fact that she stays in their house. So now she owes rent and it, and it mounts up and mounts up. And because she's not really ever paid <laughs> properly, um, then how does she ever pay back that debt? And so it can continue. So she was there for four months. um, And uh, you can imagine what she went through when she was there. Um, But after four months, actually, IJM... uh, found out about her situation. We have investigators who go in to places like that, um, that brothel undercover, and get uh, information together, evidence of who's being exploited and um, who is uh, responsible. And we take that information to the local police. We always take it to local police. We've got to work within the local system because we want to strengthen it in the longer term. So we worked with the police and actually we were able to rescue Nessa and eight other girls. Uh, back about eight years ago this was. Um, I'm telling you about this story because, of course, Ness's story didn't end back then eight years ago. Uh, She entered an aftercare home, and that can take a long time for someone to come to terms with all that they've been through. Um, 
or to and also to gain the skills that they need to live in freedom and so that's a long process but also then uh, our lawyers want to fight those cases through the courts if we just rescue Nessa and look after her that is good that's great for Nessa of course and and um, everyone is created in the image of God and so there's real value in that but we know if we stop there that um the brothel owner and those traffickers would just find more uh, vulnerable girls who are looking to get a job and that they can trick and trap. And so we've got to do something about uh, the people carrying out the crimes. And so we work with the police um, and our lawyers work with them to prosecute. And uh, the people involved in Ness's case, the case took eight years and were finally convicted in 2016. And the brothel owner was finally convicted earlier this year, 2017. But that took a long time. That's a lot of perseverance. Um, so you can imagine how, how, how much each case takes. So that's kind of a, a quick snippet of what it might be, be like. Um, Helen, in regards to um, anti-slavery, what challenges have you found in your work? Yeah, there's a lot of challenges. <laughs> um, I think one of, one of the challenges, um, some of them are sort of like right down to the individual. I think one of the challenges that, that we found is a lot of people come to this work just as I did. Um, I was shocked by what I saw when I understood about human trafficking and I saw children being sold through the border. I thought, wow, I have to do something about this. God made it very clear to me that it was, it was a calling on my life. And, um, and many other people are, are called into this. But I think that uh, what can often happen is that people will talk about their calling, but they won't talk about the mandate of working as the body of Christ together. And, um, and so as a, as a result of that, um, we've ended up um, with all of these kind of siloed responses and, um, and I have been in really small towns in Cambodia where there's probably, it's probably maybe half the size of Bangor. And there is a shelter on one street and um, a vocational training program about seven streets down. And they didn't know each other existed. And they were both Christian and they both had a heart to address human trafficking and, um, and actually, they started duplicating one another's programs until they realized that each other existed. And, um, and that may seem shocking, but that isn't an isolated incident. That happens a lot. And so I think that um, what we've got, the, the reason that trafficking is, um, is unfortunately thriving globally is because the traffickers themselves are really well networked. Criminals can only get people from one place to another if they know other people and how to get them to that country. So a lot of our cases in Cambodia, um, maybe they'll end up in China. Well, you know, one person isn't going to be able to get one person into China. They have to know somebody from the village, and then they know somebody in the city. They know somebody near the the Cambodian side of the border, then the Vietnamese side of the border, then another couple of people, someone else on the China border, somebody else in the city and out in the rural area. They are networked. Now, they may not like each other, right? They're criminals. 
they have a common vision. Their common vision is generally money generation, power and control at whatever, whatever expense of the commodity that they're dealing in. That could be drugs, that could be arms, and in this case, it's people. And so, so they make sure that they are well-networked around the world so that they can achieve their vision of making money. Now, um, now, I run a coalition, you know, we talk about collaboration, but I think one of, the, one of the challenges has been that we think that in order to work together, we must all just, all want to hug and love each other all the time. And the reality is we don't. <laughs> the reality is that there are some people that we want to spend a lot of time with and some people that maybe we just, you know, they're not going to be the person who we want to go out for a coffee with. And, um, and working in this field, we actually also need to be very strategic in our partnerships. And, um, and we need to work with people that maybe we don't want to go out for and have a coffee with. And obviously, if we can work with people that we do want to go out for a coffee with, that's fabulous. But that doesn't happen all of the time. And, um, and so this has been a huge challenge, that we've had this networked problem addressed with a siloed response. That's brilliant. Um, Ruth, how have you seen God at work? I love this question, um, because I think that the temptation whenever we talk about some of the problems and when you hear things like there are 45.8 million people enslaved or that's the one of the latest estimates and um, it can be very tempting to feel um, despairing to feel especially um, with our media I don't think it's particularly helpful in this sense and we can think well it's so big it's so awful the stories what people have been through is so terrible how could we ever, uh, what's the point? How could we ever see any progress? And I think that, um, well, I know that both of us could share lots of, lots of stories of progress. Um, I'll give a couple of examples. Uh, a few years ago, um, the Bill and Melinda Gates Foundation had heard about IJM's work and they liked the sound of it, but they just, they kind of said, okay, well, we'd like to know, does it, does it work? Does it make a difference long-term in whole communities? Um, and we said, well, we'd love to prove it do you have any money? And we can prove it. So they gave us some money and we um, started work in the Philippines, which is where Ness is from, um, who I talked about earlier. And uh, we we set up our office there and we did our work for four years of, um, that I've talked about, investigation, rescue, uh, social work, um, aftercare, uh, prosecution, working with local police, training, all of that kind of thing. At the start of the four years and at the end, independent researchers went into brothels in three major cities um, in the Metro Cebu area. And what we hoped for um, over that time was a 20% reduction in the number of minors to be found in the brothels. And what we found was a 79% reduction in the number of minors. And so we believe that if uh, trafficking is tackled um, in a collaborative, holistic way, that it is actually possible to not only rescue individuals, but to actually see a reduction um, of the crime overall. And so we are so thankful to God for that. 79%, that is amazing. Um, and a few years back, um, and it, let's think of India because uh, there are so many people enslaved in India. Um, it's a massive problem. And in 
a few years ago, we have, uh, we, every year we have a, a prayer gathering um, where we bring together supporters and staff and we cry out to God um, over a couple of days to, for his help. And we, because we know that these issues will not, we'll not tackle them without him. And during that time, some of our staff felt called to pray for the end of slavery in India. So that's a pretty big prayer. The estimates for slavery in India are, could be in the region of 15 to 20 million people enslaved. It's a big prayer to pray. Um, but a few weeks after that, we actually had our largest ever rescue, um, a single rescue of over 500 people out of one, um, one brick kiln, which is incredible. And a few months later, Google actually decided to dedicate $11 million to tackling slavery in India specifically. Um, so that was given to a coalition of organizations to use. And so, yes, we can absolutely see God at work all the time. I wanted to share some more about Ness's story with you so that you could hear about how God works in individual lives as well. So I have some of her own words, which I'm going to read to you, um, things that she said when she retold her story. So she says that before arriving in the brothel, I had no relationship with God. However, during my time in the casa, the casa is what she calls the brothel, I started calling out to God and asking him why this was happening. Why this was happening to me. Why had I been trafficked? I was so hurt and frustrated that this was my life. I was angry at God and I thought that maybe God didn't love me because first my father had died and now I was trapped in this casa. I couldn't understand why God would allow this to happen to me. So she's talking, obviously, about the journey um, that she's going through and how difficult it was. Then later she says, if it was all up to me, I would have never been able to make it. However, with the help of other people, while I was in Manila, I realized how much God loved me and that my life has meaning. During my time at the aftercare home, I was baptized as a born-again Christian and I surrendered my life to Christ as my personal savior. As proof of his presence in my life, God brought people into my life who truly cared about me in order to demonstrate his great love for me. My aftercare home and IJM were instruments made by God to bring meaning to my life again. And then she was asked what she would say to the brothel owner if she had the chance. And she said, to change her life for the better while she is in prison. I want the brothel owner to be happy. If the brothel owner does not repent and give her life to the Lord, she will never be happy. She will carry the evil things she did to us in the brothel with her for the rest of her life. I have truly forgiven her. At first, I was so angry, and I blamed her for all the horrible things that have happened to me. She was the reason I was a withered flower. However, I now look back at that time and all the horrible things that have happened, and I am so very thankful. I am thankful for the brothel owner because without her, I would never know you. I would never know IJM. I would never met. I would have never met the people I love so much from my aftercare home. Today, I am a blooming, colourful flower only as a result of the hardships I have been through. Wow. Wow. Um, Helen, what are you excited about for the future? Yeah. Um, I think one of the things that really excites me about the future is not just NGOs working together, charities working together, but how we've really seen communities and churches take this on themselves for their own communities. And, um, and we've, um, we've got a program on the ground uh, in Cambodia where we've, uh, we did a lot of prevention work because obviously 
Um, you know, we're working on restoration and all of these other issues, but it would be way better to stop it in the first place, right? To actually stop this traction coming through. So we started working with a lot of um, communities, very vulnerable and rural communities um, in Cambodia. And, um, and as our team would go in, we would sit with Christian pastors, um, but we would also sit with Buddhist monks and Muslim imams and school teachers and village and commune leaders. And we would say, these are your communities. These are your responsibility to keep them safe. And, um, and we um, taught them a lot about the tricks of the trafficker. Very similar to what Ruth is saying. You know, people would go into a community and say, I can get your daughter a job in a restaurant or whatever. The families are desperate, you know, they, they really need the income. And so, you know, they would say, yes, 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 that's great, go. So we would um, talk to them a lot about what are some of the tricks that these traffickers are using when they come into the community. And then we said to, um, to the communities, okay, now this is your responsibility to go out and tell others about how to keep their children safe and how to keep their communities safe. And, um, and the history of Cambodia, where during the Civil War, um, families turned against families within their own families to save themselves. Children were taught to um, give up their parents if their parents had an education, had um, any uh, religious dedication. And so the amount of mistrust within community is huge. And so we started to um, say, um, this isn't for charity organizations to do, this is for you to do. And many people would say, Cambodians will never protect even their own communities, never mind go out and protect other communities. And, uh, and we said, well, they never will unless you give them a vision and a chance to, right? And, um, and so over the last few years, we've seen a growing number of volunteer trainers. These are people already working um, in very poor communities. And uh, we have these uh, 80 um, uh, people who have wanted to become volunteer trainers. And last year, they trained more than 10,000 people in their villages and surrounding villages. And, uh, and people said this would never happen. And, uh, and we've seen churches step up and step out, and, and even policemen step up and step out. And um, now almost 40% of all of our cases are coming from them. And, uh, and, and this isn't just isolated in Cambodia. We're seeing this beginning in other places as well. And, uh, and that um, as a church here, you know, you have exploitation and abuse um, on, in your backyards. And, uh, and the church, what better way to show, to be God's witnesses um, in the community um, through love in action and, uh, and reaching out. So what I'm really excited about is that I just see now communities beginning to be the change in their own communities. 
And yes, we need to work at a policy level too, but we want to see grassroots change and grassroots um, uh, advocates really being raised up within the church and community. Um, we're coming near the end of our questions, which I'm a little bit sad about. But um, just before we finish, obviously we've heard um, all that you do. What can we do here? Obviously living and working in Northern Ireland, in Bangor Town, what can we do um, to get involved? How can we be part of what you are doing? I wonder if you, you might be in a couple of camps right now. You might be thinking, get me a plane ticket to Cambodia. I must work with Helen Sworn in Cambodia. I feel a little bit like that, honestly. Um, or you might be thinking, this is really interesting, hopefully, but very far away from my everyday life, and I'm really not sure what I can do or what this has to do with me. Um, and I would say to you that it has everything to do with you. Um, in IJM, we are so passionate about helping individuals and churches um, understand uh, the call to justice that is in God's word. It's all through his word um, where he He himself, God himself, loves the most vulnerable, um, the widows, the orphans, the foreigner. And so he puts that call on us as well. But how we each work it out, of course, will look different. But it is for all of us to grapple with that and to think about how is God calling me to seek justice? is that to um, try and bring together two different communities that are around me that don't know each other? Is that to uh, travel somewhere else to be involved in the kind of work I'm hearing about? But I think it's for all of us. And in IJM, one of the most exciting and encouraging things for me here is uh, whenever people like you um, get involved in what we're doing, when you catch the vision and get excited about it. And that might be uh, getting together a few friends every month to pray. That might be organizing an event to uh, raise awareness and educate the people around you. And um, that might be uh, giving up some of your hard-earned resources. For us, we've had people who, um, Christian gamers, who knew that was even a thing, but organized a, a kind of worldwide online uh, gaming competition to raise money for us. So it's thinking about what is it that you have that you can do, that you can bring uh, to this fight. And I would encourage us to be people who who um, talk about these issues, who bring them into conversation, who are people who talk about real important things, who talk about what God is doing. So I would challenge you that over the next couple of days to tell some of the stories that you've heard at Bangor Worldwide. So think about what you talk about and um, think about the influence you have over your friends and family um, and how you can influence them to think about issues of injustice. And I would encourage you to keep learning um, I know that Helen has some information at the back and we've put some out and some leaflets um, along uh, some of your seats. So please do have a look at that. I would encourage you to keep learning. Um, and I really would encourage you to pray. Sometimes whenever I ask people to pray, they say to me, well, I know I can pray, but what else can I do? And I would say there are lots of other things, but it has to start with prayer. Um, a colleague of mine wrote a small book called Deepening the Soul for Justice. And the first line of it is, um, gosh, what is it? Seeking justice doesn't begin in a brothel. It begins with the God of justice. Mm -hmm. So I think for us to be strengthened in our resolve, to be guided in wisdom for our, the right response, we've got to be praying, seeking God, what he would have us do, and especially doing that alongside other people. In IJM, we are excited to uh, see and to 
hopefully inspire a huge move of justice for prayer, a prayer for justice across the UK. Would you be a part of that with us? We need to be praying because there are still uh, 16-year-old girls in brothels in different parts of the world. There are still investigators undercover that need our help. There are still uh, communities which need their advocates to speak up for them. So would you commit to joining us in prayer? And Please speak to us at the end if you want to do that. I've got some sheets at the back where you can put your name down to get information. That, I think, is not the only step, but it is most definitely the first step. Brilliant. Do you want to say anything? Um, yeah, I mean, really just to kind of reiterate um, uh, what Ruth is saying and, and look beneath the surface in your own communities too, you know? Anything from nail bars to Chinese restaurants to... Um, all sorts of different establishments, there's, um, there's often exploitation that's happening there. And, uh, and so I just encourage you to look beneath the surface in your own communities. Thank you so much, ladies. Thank you. Um, round of applause for these lovely ladies. Um, if, <clears throat> if you've had a rate, I mean, I'm sure I am really, my heart has beaten so fast every time I want to jump up and down and say yes and amen and all of that. But you can come back. Worldwide continues again tonight at half seven. Um, and Lisa is speaking on Friday night and Helen and Ruth on Saturday night. So please do come back and uh, hear more what these ladies have to say. And we're going to end now in a a praise song, and I just feel that um, I just want to pray just um, for these ladies especially and for ourselves. But I do, I love that we're ending on just focusing again on on Jesus and the great I am. And I just feel that we have been challenged, and thank you ladies for challenging us and um, really just... um, just speaking from the heart of God and just hearing what you're doing is just incredible. Um, and I've really appreciated it. And I know that just being able to um, turn it back to Jesus and say, God, what, do, what would you have us do? What would you have me do? What can I do? What is a small step that I can make um, towards this? So um, let me pray and then, we'll, and then we'll finish up. Lord, just that sense that or getting on our knees before you and saying, may your kingdom come and may your will be done. Um, Father, for the stories that we've heard, for these incredible women who are um, living their lives, just serving and worshiping and crying out to you, Lord, and bringing your name, Jesus, into the darkest of places. And I want to pray for each of them, Lord. I want to pray for Lisa, for Ruth, for Helen, Lord, I pray you will encourage them equip them. Um, even now, as they sit just after what they've all, what they've shared, I pray you will strengthen them um, just by your spirit, Lord. I pray you will give them all they need um, for this coming week. Um, thank you that what you've done, Holy Spirit, and us, that you've uh, just quickened our hearts the things that they talked about. And Father, I pray for that those things that we have heard, that we've heard your still small voice as we have listened to all that's been said, I pray we will take that away and we will do something with that. I pray for each of us in this room. In Jesus' name, amen. We trust you've enjoyed this podcast. If you'd like to make a donation to support the work of Bangor Worldwide, please visit www.worldwidemission.org slash donate.